This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I've been invited to speak this evening on the theology on, Tom, on St. Thomas Aquinas and the theology of the body. I presume most of you know what the theology of the body is. When we use that phrase, we're referring to the Wednesday catechesis, the Wednesday audiences that Pope St. John Paul II, whose feast day is today, um, gave every Wednesday, almost every Wednesday, from 1979 to 1984. It seems, and we found this out much later, it seems that those audiences, the, the lectures he would give, I mean lectures, I'm using that equivocally, uh, were initially part of a book that he intended to publish in 1978 or so, but then he was elected Pope. And so he, would, he was basically breaking up that book into sections, adding a paragraph at the beginning and adding a paragraph at the conclusion just to um, make it into a little speech to give every Wednesday. He did that for every Wednesday, as I say, between 1979 and 1984, except for, I think there was a Marian year during that period. And of course, you know that he suffered an assassination attempt. Um, I believe it was in 1983. So there's about 130 different lectures, 130 catechesis, and those combined uh, form uh, what's become known as the theology of the body. My goal and what uh, my research uh, focused on, has focused on, is just the relationship of that because it has been somewhat popularized over the last uh, several, uh, at least couple decades, um, by a lot of popularizers who don't necessarily know or didn't follow John Paul II's formation as a priest, his philosophical formation and his theological formation, which um, was, in fact, Thomist. Now, there's arguments about him in phenomenology, which we can get into later. Um, but simply to say that my sort of the thrust of my, my argument and the thrust of my presentation tonight is that the theology of the body is, in fact, also Thomistic. That is, it's not invented whole cloth by John Paul II, even though he very seldom mentions Thomas. He's operating from Thomistic principles. You have an outline in front of you. That's pretty much the journey we're going to take this evening, if you will. Um, some of this is going to be skipping stones. There's a lot to cover. But to begin, I'm simply going to say that my presupposition is that St. Thomas, and um, I'm not going to argue this, I'm just going to ask you to give this one to me. Um, St. Thomas in the 13th century really offered a cohesive whole of what more, the moral life is, that it's the pursuit of beatitude, which is to say it's the pursuit of happiness with God. Right? That, Today, in today's world, you start talking about morality, people tend to think you're going to start talking to them about duty or obligation or what you ought to do or what you should do. For St. Thomas, um, law and duty were less a part of morality than virtue, growing in holiness, and therefore growing also in happiness. Right? Uh, for St. Thomas, uh, an easy way to remember this when I talk, teach my students uh, St. Thomas's moral theory is to say, for St. Thomas, morality is about two things. What is happiness and how do I get it? Right? Everything else that morality came to be about is a sort of uh, derivative of those two questions or extraneous baggage that happens because, for historical reasons. In the century, for instance, following St. Thomas's death in 1274, the world became rather unhinged with what were objectively earth-shattering um, events. The Black Plague, the Hundred Years' War, the Western Schism. Whereas things seemed to make coherent sense in the 13th century, by the time you get to the 14th century, all rationality, everything that seems to have made sense in the world is gone. Imagine the 14th century as 100 years of the 1960s. Okay. Um, it's this is what we're talking about. Right? So it should not be surprising that in the 14th century, Western society sees the development of things like philosophical nominalism, moral uh, voluntarism, 
that these sort of took hold. Now, the, the traditional whipping boy for Dominicans is William of Ockham on this. Right? I'm not going to spend too much time with that tonight. But the shift from Thomistic Aristotelian realism to a nominalist and voluntarist view of God and reality led, in fact, to a morality that was heavily focused on God's divine will and on divine law. What is God's will and what does his law say I must do? Here I would point you to the work of the Dominican Servius Pincares, uh, Sources of uh, Christian Ethics, his great book there was a good one to read, which, has sh which showed how this period diverted Christian morality away from a focus on beatitude, on virtue and grace, to a focus on law, obligation, and conscience. Uh, what is my conscience telling me to do? So the focus on an absolute obligation to follow God's will, I'm not saying you don't have this obligation, it just focus on an absolute obligation to follow God's will set up uh, or sets up a moral battle between human freedom on the one hand and divine law, which is then mediated by conscience. Here's what God says I, I must do. Here's what I want to do. And conscience becomes the judge or in some cases the advocate for human freedom. Uh, this, in turn, precipitated a case-based moral theology that came to be known uh, later as casuistry that filled the pages of most confessional handbooks that priests were, you, were taught, from which they were taught how to hear confessions. The manualist tradition tended to emphasize, this tradition of the confessional manuals, tended to emphasize what we might refer to as the physical structure of human action and strict obedience to law that is revealed in nature, a law that is revealed in nature, a sort of natural law, but I would argue, and many would argue, that not the natural law as St. Thomas articulated or understood it. So that you have the physical structure of human action, what is being done, the natural law as revealed in nature, that these two things are taken together to understand or to give a moral evaluation of the human, human act. Eventually, in centuries to follow, this translated into an emphasis on biological processes as revelatory of natural law. Whatever a biological process um, is intended to do, that must be the natural law. In the centuries that followed, the natural telos of biological processes, which is to say the natural end of biological processes, began to give way to scientific progress, which, which was increasingly efficient in altering those processes for the perceived good of the human person. Responding to this development and the perceived insufficiencies of the manuals in the 20, even into the 20th century, some Catholic moral theologians at the turn of the 20th century and into the early 20th century began to favor the notion of, an, of the acting person as the category of theological and moral discourse rather than the purposes of nature and what nature des designs or what nature requires which at that point were simply understood to be merely biological processes. So that the person and what the, is good for the person and the, and the rational person, especially now that science is able to alter and divert biological processes, that there must be a greater sort of human uh, efficiency and human ability to reason what is good and moral without having to feel subjugated or subject to biological nature um, as uh, some sort of authority. And even good Christian moral theologians were arguing this. I mean, you can imagine how that kind of thought, there can be all sorts of parameters and people on all, sort, on all sides of the spectrum. The idea that um, we are rational creatures and that God gave us reason Medicine and science is about us using reason, so why should we not use medicine and science to do that which we have determined and discerned is good for me or good for my family? These are still questions that are alive today. Think about, for instance, 
Uh, the church's teaching on artificial um, insemination or IVF versus, you know, a person, a family's, a an infertile couple's rationale that we're reasonable people, my body has an issue here, why is this a problem to correct this? Right. So that's basically where moral the theology was. Um, and this was basically how moral theology was done. Casuistry, confessional manuals, really until the 20th century. But as I say, beginning in th at the begin at the, sorry, as I say, at the beginning of the 20th century, and for a lot of reasons, there were an increasing number of developments in all areas of theology. There's one commenter on this period has pointed out that not only were there developments in Catholic theology and Protestant theology, but at the same time, the laity were increasingly being encouraged to view marriage as a real vocation to holiness. We take this for granted in 2020. This was not taken for granted in 1920. Right? So that marriage is a vocation that, that, and that love expressed through sexual intercourse can be a means of holiness and sanctity. They were, the laity were increasingly realizing that marriage was better characterized as self-gift rather than merely a sort of contract relationship. Or even, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of in today's discourse when we talk about covenant language. I mean, covenant language has a contract aspect to it, but also has an aspect of gift to it, right? Which is why we kind of start, have started to prefer covenant language. This sentiment was catalyzed at the time by various movements. There were things like the Family Renewal Association, the Cana Conference movement, uh, the idea that there were lay families, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, Catholics, who were actually getting in together in small groups, which once again today is taken for granted as possibility to talk about their vocation as mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, reading scripture together, engaging in sort of retreats about what it means to be married and that marriage can actually help you to grow and bring you to sanctity and holiness. Increasingly, therefore, in some settings, and especially in, in, theolo in theological ones, there was less focus on what the church has come to understand as the primary purpose of marriage, the procreation and the education of children, in favor of what is, in fact, the secondary purpose, which is the mutual help of spouses. Um, one commenter says that in, the con in this context, in the context of this growing appreciation of the personal values of married life and married love, it seemed increasingly unrealistic to think that the nature of marriage could be adequately expressed in the impersonal categories of primary and secondary purposes, that there was something lacking in the language of the church. This trend um, went in all sorts of different directions depending on who you were reading or who was writing all the way into the 1950s. But it was particularly evident in the birth control movement at the turn of the century, which found sympathy within the church in the 1960s. The interaction between the meaning of personal self-giving love on the one hand and the natural ends of marriage traditionally understood would occupy the thought of many Catholic moral theologians in the mid 20th century who found themselves confronted with the invention of a pill that was no long, could no longer be um, argued against on the basis that a barrier was being placed between spouses. The pill is not a condom. It is not a diaphragm. There's no physical, it's a pill using biological processes that human reason has found can work to um, suppress uh, a woman's fertility. It's just a pill. This is going to be the, the crux of the argument that, that the theology of the body is trying to respond to. Right? Pope John XXIII established a papal commission in 1963 to study the question 
of the birth control pill. There was no, there were really no questions about condoms or any other sort of devices. I mean, the pill was the new player in the theological game. How is this different than the others? It seems different. How is it different? It is well known that it is now well known that a majority of the participants on that commission, and we can talk about the commission later if you want, it met like four times every single time the Pope, first John the 23rd, and then Paul the sixth kept adding people to the commission because he kept hearing that uh, the, the discussion was descending in directions he was not happy with. So he kept adding more and more till the fourth one, it was like, divided into the upper group and the lower group, the executive group and the subgroup, and you know the bishops were on the executive group. Even then, with all of this, it is well known that a majority of the participants on the commission favored a change in the church's teaching on contraception, asked that the Pope would allow the pill to be morally used uh, by Catholics. The minority of the participants of that commission upheld, wanted to uphold the ban on contraception, and their argument relied primarily on the strength of the church's tradition in condemning contraception always. They reflected on John Newton's book, uh, which he called Contraception. Um, and it was John Newton who even re most re in the last decade or so has published works arguing that the church should change its stance on contraception but surprisingly, or you know, maybe more honestly, uh, his book, Contraception, which goes through a whole history of the church's teaching on contraception, he concluded that there can, you can find no period in the church's history, no document of the church, no theological school, um, no Catholic theologian who, have, who would have ever entertained that idea seriously. And this is a very historian who says the church should change. So that never, there's no evidence that the church would ever have accepted such a thing, historically. When the minority itself, the ones who were in favor of keeping the ban, addressed arguments in favor of the church's teaching, they themselves admitted that they couldn't give you a solid argument of why the pill was immoral. Because they were relying on the natural law theories that they that had been prominent at the time focused on casuistry, biological processes, right? To the exclusion of the concept of the acting person. Here's what they said. They said, if we could bring forward arguments which are clear and cogent based on reason alone, it would not be necessary for this commission even to exist. Nor would we even be experiencing the present state of, of affairs in the church. The inviolability of intercourse has always been taught, um, they understood, because intercourse is generative. It produces life. And they said, this is another quote from the minority, this inviolability is always attributed to the act and to the process which are biological but not in as much as they are biological, but in as much as they are human. Namely, in as much as they are the object of deliberate human act acts, human activity, and are destined by their nature to the good of the human species. The same thing is true for abortion. The church has no dogmatic position um, on when the, the soul, and has never had a dogmatic pronouncement of when ensoulment happens. Right? But the church has always been against abortion, despite what some politicians will say, you know, that Augustine or St. Thomas held for delayed hominization. Okay, yeah, maybe, yes, but they did not hold that you could still abort even in the first couple of days or first couple of weeks because the process is the life-giving process, all right, with God, with the Creator. On the opposite side, the rejection of the majority of the commission's participants of any natural law argument rest, rested upon their insistence on human freedom over nature. That the dignity of man, see, and here's, this is what we're dealing with, the dignity of man, this is a quote, that God, the dignity of man consists in that God wished man to share in his own dominion. And so God has left man in the hands of his own counsel. Therefore, the dominion of God is exercised through man who can use nature for his own perfection according to the dictates of right reason. 
Despite the fact that the majority substitutes biological processes and natural inclinations, they still insisted that there had to be some moral criterion that had to be respected. Specifically, um, they said that whatever a couple does, they need to do it in conformity with rational nature. So I, I presume even the majority on the commission in favor of contraception, in favor of the pill, would uh, say that using the pill to avoid conception while, you know, in human in sex trafficking or in pornography or something is not rational, it's not human. We can't do that, right? I think they'd still draw the line there. But a married couple using the pill to have responsible parenthood and to space out their births, they were fine with. Because they'd say that's a rational good of the human nature, of the human species, responsible parenthood. It, they, uh, they gave that report to John Paul II in 1966. He had it for two years. He released it in what became known as Humanae Vitae. I'm sure many of you are aware this was one of the first uh, encyclicals of modern times that um, experienced heavily, heavy dissent even from priests and bishops. I think that was probably traumatic, traumatic uh, for St. Paul VI. One way you know that is that Humanae Vitae was issued in July of 1968. He died in um, September of 1978, so 10 years. He never wrote another encyclical for the rest of his pontificate. I think he was just absolutely traumatized by the reaction of Humanae Vitae. Um, he basically follows you can imagine in, on that day in 1968, there are stories of this because the dissent was led by a priest at Catholic University, Father Charlie Curran. In 1968, they didn't have computers, right? I mean, they did, but... Uh, so Curran had somebody in Rome faxing him the pages of Humanae Vitae. So here they were, him and his buddies, huddled around a fax machine. And imagine how slow those fax machines were in 1968. And Imani Vitae on, on regular size paper, it's gotta be at least 150, 180 pages. So they're getting it page at a time and they're reading it. it Humani Vitae, the first several paragraphs of Humani Vitae sounds like the majority report, the, the report of the of the uh, commission of the participants who are in favor of overturning church teaching like paul the sixth agrees with them on the nature of marriage the nature of responsible parenthood going on and on and on and then of course the page comes with paragraphs 11 and 12 right and it's in paragraphs 11 and 12 that he says that well 10 through 12 where the encyclical makes a decisive shift and insists that couples are not free to act however they choose in transmitting life. But they must, he says, act in a way that corresponds to the will of the creator. And it's there, especially in paragraph 12, in which um, Paul VI articulates that there is an inseparable connection between the unitive and the procreative elements of the conjugal act, a significance. This is the kind of language that started developing in the 50s that instead of talking about ends, we're gonna talk about meanings and significance. So that there is a unitive significance, a unitive meaning, a unitive end, we can still say, and a procreative end or a procreative meaning. And Paul VI says they're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Here's the thing, he doesn't explain why that's the case in Humanae Vitae. In the 1960s, also going on at the same time, a young priest and eventually bishop in Poland, Karol Wojtyła, began to see that the traditional ways of defending Catholic moral norms based on the methodology employed by the manuals were less and less effective for the faithful. And so he would turn his attention to other methodology, methodologies. This is such as phenomenology, the, the, the thought of someone like Max Scheler, to develop 
what we might refer to, even though there's problems with this, but we might refer to as a uniquely personalist moral theology. However, without abandoning what he would call ontology and, and metaphysics, and especially the metaphysics of St. Thomas Aquinas. So after the release of Humani Vitae, he became an ardent defender of the encyclical and published several articles, both scholarly and popular, to defend and to buttress Paul VI's conclusions with his own arguments. The theology of the body is a sort of culmination of all of those arguments in favor of Humani Vitae. He himself says at the, in the very end, the catechesis at the very end, which are catechesis on Humani Vitae itself, that this was the reason he started writing and working on the theology of the body. So one way to think about it is Paul VI comes, figures out, intuits the conclusion, doesn't exactly give a good argument for it, and John Paul II comes to the world stage to give the argument for the conclusion. So even though John Paul Kiravoitiwa was interested in many ways in reconnecting theological and philosophical thought with human experience, and the experience of the parishioners and especially the young people and the young married couples he knew, um, it's important to say that he, he was still obviously no relativist and a man of faith. He was a follower of Jesus Christ. And Christians believe fundamentally that the world makes sense, that creation makes sense, and that we can learn from it. This is what St. Thomas thinks the natural law actually is. Christians believe that God makes sense, that his will has a ratio to it, that and that revelation is reasonable even if at times it is mysterious. Now, the theology of the body. And here this evening, I'm simply going to focus on the first part of this, um, mostly just to give you a sort of a foundation. The scriptural foundation, and this is an important point of the theology of the body, is that it is an inherently a scriptural um, exegesis. John Paul is not engaging in the theology of the body in philosophical or natural law reasoning. He's using scripture to argue and to, under, to argue from Revelation what God has ordained about marriage and the life of man and woman together. The scriptural foundation for the theology of the body is really the creation story that's found in the second and third chapters of Genesis. And we all know this story, right? God creates man, puts him in a garden, sees that's not good for him to be alone, and then creates the woman after bringing all of the animals to man. For John Paul, this is a quote from the theology of the body, chapter two of Genesis, he says, constitutes the oldest description and record of man's self-understanding. And together with chapter three, he says, it's the first witness of human consciousness, of man thinking about himself. So the Genesis narrative, we might consider it an, an inspired account of man's self-understanding. And the primal experience of man revealed in Genesis is what John Paul refers to as original solitude, the aloneness of man. He's alone in the world. This is why none of the animals can be helped. He knows he's different. He's not like them. And he draws, John Paul draws two conclusions from this. First, that man is from the very beginning of his existence um, in search of himself before God, in search of his identity. Uh, John Paul, one place, has used the language being. He's looking for his identity, his being. And John Paul says that everybody is engaged in this, in life, looking for our, our identity. He says it's a subjective search for an objective identity. God has an identity for you, even if subjectively you have no clue what it is. Objectively, it's there. So he's looking for who he is, by accepting and living out the identity and the vocation that God has inscribed in him. The second conclusion that John Paul reaches from the Genesis narrative is that self-knowledge goes hand in hand with knowledge of the world. This is where you can see he's kind of getting past some of the uh, Max Shaler and some of his earlier romances with um, uh, phenomenology. That man realizes that he alone is different because he is different in the visible world. We're not like the other things we see in the world. 
The man clearly realizes that he is not the same as the animals. Now, the body plays a significant role in this for John Paul because it's the human body that reveals to man that he is different. The very structure of the body is what permits uh, Adam, we might say, to be the author of genuinely human activity. I often think about the existence of opposable thumbs, right, and what we can do with those. That's part of the structure of the body and uniquely human activity. This is why, precisely why, Adam's first reaction upon seeing Eve is not to notice their physical differences, but to notice that she is like him. This one is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She, we, are, we are the same. This is one of the central themes of the theology of the body. If you take only a few things tonight, this is one of them. The body expresses the person for, for John Paul II. The creation of the woman then means that mankind has two complementary ways of existing in the body. Two complementary ways of being human, male and female. And this complementarity has a special meaning for the body when man and woman come together in the conjugal act. This is what John Paul calls the spousal attribute or the spousal meaning of the body, which I'll be getting to in a second. Basically, the spousal meaning is simply this. The body itself has a directionality. It directs the human person to another in the form of a gift. The conjugal union carries within itself, John Paul says, a particular awareness that the body is meant to, to be a self-gift to another person. Now, there's a deeper reason that the body and that the human person, for John Paul, is directed outward to the other in gift, and it has to do with creation. In John Paul's words, this is a couple-line quote, but he says this, Genesis introduces us into the mystery of creation, that is, of the beginning of the world by the will of God who is omnipotence and love. Consequently, every creature bears within itself the sign of the original and fundamental gift, the gift of existence. Creation is a gift because man appears in it, who, who as an image of God is able to understand the very meaning of the gift in the call from nothingness to existence. So the uniqueness of being human in this perspective is not only that we are called from nothing into existence, which all of creation is, but that we can understand that we are called from nothing into existence, that this is part of our identity. So that there is a directionality from nothingness to existence, to the other, and ultimately to God himself. That we have a, 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 a directionality written in our whole very being, and the body is a witness to this. In the theology of the body, Marriage is intended not only for biological procreation, but to propagate the gift of creation through the gift of self from one generation to the next. This is also why procreation is so important, because it is a sign of the fruitfulness of the couple's gift of themselves to each other. So that the gift from nothingness to existence continues to propagate from one generation to the next. So, the human person, whether man or woman, created in the image of God through a gratuitous gift from the same God is, is unique in all of creation because the person can understand this gift. And this uniqueness stems from the fact that they are free persons engaged in a uniquely human activity, all of our human activities, but most especially in the conjugal act, where they are called out of themselves toward a communion with each other and ultimately with God. So, human existence is fundamentally characterized um, by a certain existential solitude that separates us from all other creatures, but that is nonetheless marked by a drive to other human persons, and especially to one other human person, and ultimately to the persons of God. Now, at the beginning of time in that Genesis narrative, um, John Paul says that the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they would have understood all of this intuitively. They would have known this. They would have known that. They would have had a complete understanding of it. They knew that they were made to be gifted to each other. But original sin ruins all of that. 
After sin, the body is no longer an effective sign in communicating the person. Sin introduces concupiscence, which is unmoderated self-desire, which threatens this whole thing. It threatens our self-mastery. It threatens the relationship of the person to the body. It, it threatens the relationship of man and woman with each other and of man with creation. Right? With sin, our bodies are in revolt against our personhood. We are no longer masters of our bodies. We are no longer masters of our sensual desires. We are not completely free. And if we do not have the interior freedom of self-mastery, then in fact we cannot make a self-gift of ourselves because you cannot give what you do not possess. And if you have no self-possession, you can't therefore give yourself away. And so th this, this is the battle, that our very nature actually craves the other, looks to the other in order to be a gift for the other, but concupiscence also means that we are always craving, always desiring, and that we are never in fact satisfied. So this desire combined with concupiscence means precisely that the union of man and woman now becomes insatiable. Right? And you see this in Genesis when God says to Eve, uh, your desire will be for your husband. You know, The union does not completely satisfy. The interior struggles of our body's impulses alienates us from our own body. The body becomes something else than simply expressing me. It doesn't, it only now with difficulty does it contribute to my personal identity, to my being. The inherent spousal meaning of the body, that directionality to the other, is of course not destroyed by sin. The body can still communicate self-gift, but because of sin, the very communication itself is distorted. And this is not just in the conjugal act, but in all of our communications. The ability to lie, the ability to put on a good face when in fact we are angry, the, the inability we labor under to communicate honestly with each other. All of this is from original sin, and this is why we need redemption. Now, in the theology of the body, as in the rest of Christian tradition, redemption is not only about salvation, although it's principally about that. It's also about redeeming the human person, body and soul. So it's about redeeming the body. Building off of St. Paul's observations in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives, and as, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church, not wives, wife, as Christ loved the church. John Paul notes that in giving his own body in sacrifice for love of the church, his bride, Christ's redeeming love is therefore also a spousal love. The redemption by Christ recreates, John Paul says, the spousal meaning of the body which was broken by sin. Now, just to be clear, the idea here is not that the body needs to be redeemed because it is evil, far from it. Um, it only means that the body's, because of man's sinfulness, he lost a clear sense of the spousal meaning of the body in which uh, there was an interior dominion and freedom of spirit necessary to express himself bodily. We need the redemption of the body and soul through Christ's own offering. So the body is redeemed through Christ's offering of his own body to receive the healing grace necessary to regain the freedom over our sensual cravings in order to truly make a gift of ourselves to another. So you can see sort of a common theme here in John Paul's entire pontificate. The grace of Jesus Christ reveals to us not only what it means to be God, but also what it means to be man. He is the true man, the perfect man. Redemption culminates in the next life, John Paul says, in which men and women will participate in the inner life of God himself, in a self-gift, in which God gives himself to the blessed, and the blessed give themselves completely to God. This exchange is a fruit of grace. And so this is where uh, the question of celibacy in this world um, comes into play. The spousal meaning of the body in this life is transformed in the, in the beatific vision for John Paul into the virginal meaning of the body in which you are given over entirely to God and becoming entirely one with him without the sort of sexual dominion or sexual domination, right? That it's all is sort of overtaken and the soul is 
overflows in its joy to the resurrected body. The language of the body for John Paul II is that the, the body is meant to communicate the spousal meaning of the body. And for John Paul, this means that the couple, even in their marital relationship, must always communicate what is the truth of their relationship, the truth of their vocation. The spousal meaning of the body is communicated, and this is um, uh, a little bit towards the end of his theology of the body where he goes into this stuff, but um, the exchange of consent at the altar on, on, a on the one's wedding day is in fact what is intended to be communicated in the conjugal act by the body. So in the exchange of consent in which bride and groom give themselves to each other, they must always there from that day forward communicate with each other in ways that are not contrary to that truth, that they have given themselves over to each other. So when couples, for example, use contraception, and this is why the unitive and the procreative cannot be separated, they actually, for John Paul, are speaking a lie with their bodies by withholding something from the gift that they had given at the altar to each other. You can't have one without the other. You can't tell your spouse, I love you, and at the same time withhold your fertility from your spouse. Attempting to communicate the unitive without the procreative is not, in fact, unitive. Attempting to communicate uh, the procreative without the unitive has other problems. Thomas goes, Aquinas goes into that a little bit more in depth than John Paul does. Now, there's a couple weaknesses I think St. Thomas um, helps the theology of the body with. So for instance, in the theology of the body, uh, John Paul never goes into the ontological or objective structures of the human person. This is really this really is a scriptural exegesis. It's not that wasn't his project. This is why when you find moral theologians who want to turn the theology of the body into the catch-all of everything, that really wasn't his his plan. He didn't want it to be a catch-all. For instance, children are never mentioned once in the theology of the body. All right, but even though the whole thing is about the self-gift and procreative and unitive. I think Wojtyla knew that. Uh, when he was teaching in the University of Lublin in the late 1950s, um, he taught always from the Summa. He was, a he was a traditional sort of Thomist lecturer you know, lecturing from the Summa Theologiae. It's not until the birth control in the 1960s and into the 1970s that he begins to even wonder whether St. Thomas is not the right way to approach this. Right. Um, but tonight, I just want to suggest six aspects, and I know we're, we're coming, you know, to the end of our time, so these won't, I won't take too long on these, but six aspects of Aquinas' teaching that not only support the theology of the body and the spousal meaning of the body, but can also provide a deeper metaphysical and theological foundation to what John Paul was trying to do in his scriptural exegesis and his catechesis. These are all very basic to mystic principles. It, I think for most of you, none of this will be a surprise, but they are largely forgotten in current discussions, I would say, on marriage and the theology of the body. And if not forgotten, they're not, they're not attributed to St. Thomas, which as a Dominican kind of upsets me a little bit. But make, make, make no mistake, he knew, Boitiwa knew these principles. Okay? First, the appetite for perfection. These all six are on your handout. St. Thomas had a strong sense of created beings, appetite for perfection. Um, in his metaphysics, in his philosophy, perfection is uh, synonymous with being an act, and which is synonymous with the good. And he's borrowing all of this, of course, from Aristotle, right? So all created being, whether man, woman, dog, tree, rock, anything, in a certain sense wants, put that in quotes there, wants uh, its perfection. 
All created being wants to be fully actualized, fully perfect. Trees want to be actualized by growing toward the sun. Geese want to be actualized by flying south for the winter. The whole of creation is yearning for the actualization in the supreme good who is God himself. Right? And this actualization always, always requires something else or somebody else, some other agent. We do not perfectly self-actualize all of our potencies. Other than the, so you, every created being needs some other agent to actualize its potencies, most of its potencies. This is true whether that other agent is the supreme good, who is God himself, or the secondary agents, created agents who are good in some respects and actualized in certain respects, and therefore can actualize other things in those same respects. Fire can actualize the wood become hot. It is not in a rock's exist being to be in midair, but when I throw a rock up, the agent of gravity is what brings the rock back down to its actualized uh, resting place. That's where it wants to be. The human person, who is a composite of body and soul, is actualized and therefore perfect in some respects and imperfect in others, inasmuch as we exist and we have certain potencies actualized. And of course, we all know not none of us is completely perfect. None of us has actualized our full potency or all of our potencies. And that we need others, other persons and other things and other activities to bring imperfections, our capacities and potencies to act. Every person, just like every creature, finds fulfillment outside of himself, outside of itself. Perfection, whether that for humans, whether that's in study, in work, and in relationship. To use formal Aristotelian Thomistic language, every agent acts for an end, for a good. Now, for St. Thomas, and the word love is used in all sorts of ways in the Summa. I mean, that's a, that's a study in itself. But love in its most primal sense for St. Thomas, and often is used, is the word that is used for this drive to perfection, this appetite for perfection. It's to drive this appetite for that which is connatural and perfecting, which is to say it's to drive to that which is in accord with our nature, which perfects us. In that sense, everything has love. Rocks have it, geese have it, dogs have it, trees have it, you have it. But what separates these natural loves or animal loves from human love is precisely that men and women can know and can understand and can choose where they will seek their perfection and in whom they will seek their perfection. Ours is a chosen love, which is a unique love for St. Thomas, and that's why he reserves the word uh, for human love, rational love, dilexio. It's a love of choice, of election. So St. Thomas would agree with John Paul that all creation is called out of nothingness, but that man has a unique role in all of this precisely because of his understanding and his power to choose, which is what makes him in the image of God. The second principle, very simple and very easy, um, relevant characteristic here, uh, characteristic of Aquinas' thought is his strict hylomorphism. A lot we can talk about on this. We're not going to, but I'm going to simply say, remember hylomorphism for St. Thomas, I mean, that is the theology of the body. It's the, it's the theory that the body and soul are so united, so intertwined, that they are, in a sense, um, codependent is not even the right word. For St. Thomas, the human person is not just a body and not just a soul. And these are not even parts for St. Thomas. They're principles of a composite. So much is St. Thomas committed to this um, that he, would, he holds that when our souls separate from the bodies at death, until the general resurrection of the dead, you cannot refer to the blessed, the souls in heaven, as true human persons because they're lacking their body. If he were alive today, I mean, the body needs the soul, the soul needs the body. If, if St. Thomas were alive today, I think he'd be very thrilled to know some of the things that neuroscience has found, like how the brain works and how memory, that we can identify parts of the brain where memories are located and sense images are located. He would think all of that's fine and good and true, 
Um, that the body is the principle of contact between the soul and the world. In that sense, the body expresses the soul. All of this, he would agree with St. Thomas. Um, he would certainly agree that the body is not incidental. I mean, this is what it, it distinguishes our personhood from the personhood of God and the personhood of the angels. We are embodied persons. Our souls need the body, and our bodies um, need the soul. In fact, I would, I would go further and say that the problem of today's culture is not so much that the culture um, idolizes the body, but that it doesn't respect the body enough. The third principle is rational love. Human love is distinguished, as I said, from the natural desire drives to perfection or natural love because it's a love that is chosen. But we are composite creatures, so we have the animal side into us, or we have the animal side in us. Authentic and distinctively human love for Aquinas requires that we have our passions, our emotions, um, all in order which is to say that our animal side or our bodily side must be subordinate to that which is distinctively human, our reason. And Aquinas, along with John Paul in the classical Christian tradition, insists that this is an inherently difficult task to accomplish after original sin, this kind of harmony between our intellect, our reason, our mind, and our body, our passions. I always think of St. Paul's phrase, I do not do the good I want, but I do the very evil I hate. But by definition, remember, though, that for Aquinas, love is that drive for perfection, that drive out of oneself to the good. For marital love to be truly human love, it must be characterized by what is specifically human, the fact that we can think and that we can reason. Love must be a choice guided by reason and guided by truth, much more than guided by passion and sensuality. Uh, even though these are certainly part of human love. When a person's love is motivated solely by carnal desire, for St. Thomas, that's true whether we're talking about marital love, love of relationships, or any of the loves we sort of have in our daily lives. When our loves are motivated by carnal desire or concupiscence, we act mostly more like animals than we do rational human persons. This is why for both John Paul and St. Thomas, um, that there always has been, since original sin, feelings of shame attached to sexual activity, especially when that sexual activity is not ordered properly to reason. Aquinas was somewhat unique in his milieu on this, um, is that he doesn't think that sex is inherently sinful between married couples or dirty or shameful provided that um, it's entered into reasonably and rationally. The reason so many middle uh, scholastics and theologians and philosophers in the Catholic tradition in the Middle Ages and even in the first millennium um, believe that sex is sort of sinful is precisely because of the, uh, the nature of the passion that is generated by the act can in fact overrule reason at the moment uh, of engaging in the act. This is why married couples, although when they're in the intimate marital relationship, all things being equal, in fact, do not feel shame when they engage in the sexual act because they have make this, made this commitment guided by reason and therefore have separated themselves from animals who simply act on craving or instinct. This is a, this is a person who is generally a virtuous person. John Paul would use the language self-possessed. The fourth principle, the equality of men and women. Even though St. Thomas is strict, this, and I'm going to just caveat this and say that there is dispute on this, but we can talk about that later if you like. Uh, even though St. Thomas is strict hylomorphism and his uh, indebtedness, indebtedness to Aristotelian biology forces him to assert the superiority of men to women, I'd like to say in a qualified sense, his settled position on marriage is that it is a conjugal relationship that is characterized by what he calls the highest form of friendship, amicitia maxima. So in spite of their sexual differences, and even though he argued, following St. Paul, that the husband was the head of the family, there is in sense, and as you read through the Summa, and the Summa Contra Gentiles especially, there is in a sense um, a necessary 
equality between husband and wife in marriage because equality is necessary for true friendship. A domestic justice, if you will. True friendship for Aquinas, following Aristotle, wants, of course, the good not only for oneself, but for one's friend. So much is this the case, obviously, that the good of your friend becomes your own good. In his, writing, in his writings, Aquinas provides, I, I'm not, I didn't go into this in my paper for tonight, but Aquinas provides actually detailed arguments on why monogamy and indissolubility are necessary aspects of marriage precisely to protect the equality of husband and wife in friendship. He's categorically against any arrangement that would uh, put the wife, the woman, in subject, subjugation outside of friendship to the husband. So this is why you can't marry someone un beneath your station or someone who owes you outside of uh, the marital debt, which is if there is a debt between the spouses, it's the marital debt. In St. Thomas's view, we don't the church doesn't use this language much anymore, although I think we should because I think it's an important question. The husband and wife give to each other a certain authority over their bodies in exchange, in the exchange of mutual consent. This gift is traditionally called the marital debt. And I realize that sounds a little economic, um, but what it means is that in traditional terms, each spouse can request the conjugal act from the other. The wife belongs to the husband and the husband to the wife. Um, and so uh, to put it bluntly, saying no to your spouse is generally not an option in marriage, traditionally speaking. Although St. Thomas intimates that there are differences, and he does go through this, and in my book on this, I do talk about this a little bit, but St. Thomas does intimate that there are certainly differences between how the husband and how, or how the wife might request the debt to be paid, right? Um, he says these differences owe to the fact that men and women approach these things differently and have different sensibilities, right? And they communicate differently. I would say that this language of marital debt, even though the language seems outdated, is very much similar to the language of self-gift. But it also is meant to protect us, or I'm sorry, to protect the couple from, the, from lust and the possibility of objectifying their spouse. St. Thomas provides several parameters for the asking of this debt to be paid to prevent a spouse from lusting after the other, although I want to admit here he only mentions the possibility of a husband lusting after his wife and never the other way around. I presume he thinks the other way around could happen. He doesn't get detailed. He leaves a lot to prudence and for the couple to discern the in the relationship. But the whole point, to use somewhat contemporary language, is to protect the bodies from each other, um, the bodies of the spouses from being used or objectified. And finally, the formal element of marriage. And this, is, uh, this also is a little bit of an advance, or if you will, just building on something he says. Um, toward the end of his life, St. Thomas wrote that the formal element of marriage is the inseparable union of souls. He says this in the Summa when he's talking about the Josephite marriage, the marriage of Mary and Joseph. Right? Recent scholarship has now begun to focus on this statement, this idea in Aquinas and how it relates to contemporary debates on the personal and unitive dimension of marriage. One of my colleagues at Providence College, Paul Gondreau, has written a great amount on this. While Aquinas and scholasticism tend to be uh, accused of being overly naturalistic or physicalistic in the emphasis on the primacy of procreation, which I charge, I deny that they're being overly physicalistic on this. The fact is that Aquinas understood marriage to consist of an inseparable union of souls in the highest friendship. So just as a human person is a composite of body and soul in which the formal is the soul united to the material with, which is the body, we might suggest, and this is just a suggestion, suggestion that the formal element of marriage, the union of souls, cannot be separated from the material element of marriage, which is the body and its procreative um, potential. Nor can they be separated from the end of marriage, and Aquinas spends a lot of time on this, which is the begetting and upbringing of children, which is in fact benefited by the biological material aspect of marriage 
and the formal aspect in as much as the union of spouses creates the unit of mother and father for the care of the children. The two cannot be separated. St. Thomas has a lot of arguments about that. Um, Insisting that marriage is formerly the union of souls is what makes marriage dis a distinctively human endeavor and not simply an endeavor of animals. The insistence upon the union of souls elevates the procreative aspect of marriage beyond the merely biological to the distinctively human, the rational, and in fact, the, of the delexio, the chosen love. Now, just to conclude quickly, did Aquinas make all of these connections? No. Uh, remember, these, this is somewhat anachronistic. He wasn't concerned about arguments in contraception, marriage, and the person. He didn't know of the concept of the unitive and the procreative being inseparable. But the principles are already there in his work and in his thought. And St. John Paul II knew that. John Paul did not intend to say everything there was to say on the matter in the theology of the body. I don't think he intended it to be considered his great magnum opus. We know that he intended to publish this book in 1979 before he, elected the, he was elected to be a pope, and he intended to give a, a sort of a case for why especially Christians should uh, avoid contraception and why marriage is in fact uh, the vocation to holiness in which gift is given one, a man to a woman, woman to a man, and that this gift must be lived through marriage um, inseparably uniting procreative and unitive. I think at the same time, just as one last thought, that John Paul knew, even at the end of his life, that St. Thomas continued to have lasting influence and that there was a lasting need in the church for his thought. Because in his last published book, his final memoir, Memory and Identity, he published three biographies. This was his third and last one. It's in the very first 10 to 15 pages. He says that in order to speak rationally about good and evil, we have to return to St. Thomas Aquinas. He says that phenomenological, the phenomenological method is not enough. He says if you just have that, you end up in a vacuum. You need the ontology and the metaphysics of St. Thomas. Thank you.